Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. And today with Matt Wensing of Summit, we answer listener questions. Questions about hard lessons learned as founders, questions about reaching high-touch prospects, finding advisors, and several others. I hope you enjoy the show. Matt Wensing, thank you so much for coming back on the show, man. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for folks who listen to the episode, I guess it was two weeks ago now, you were on episode 489, and it was titled 15 Years to a SaaS Exit, plus why forecasting is crucial. And you and I talked through your your prior startup, Risk Pulse, that you had replaced yourself. You'd found a CEO to run it after growing it to a few million dollars in revenue, several million dollars, somewhere in there. And then you actually exited earlier this year uh, after 15 years running it. And then we dug into your your current startup, Summit, which is a tiny seed company. We talked about how it forecasts for SaaS. Yeah, all, all the stuff, all your forecasting experience and uh, what you're up to. So super cool to have you back to kind of take, you know, having an experienced founder, multi-time founder now with an exit under your belt to weigh in on a few listener questions. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, stoked to have you here. So let's uh, let's just dive right in. Our first question came from Twitter and it was Matt DeCure. And he said, what are some of the hard things you've experienced as a founder that you are surprised by? Yeah, I, I think I could, well, I think most of us could go on this all day uh, responding to this because it, it does seem like sometimes that it's, life as a founder is really about discovering these things slowly but surely. But a few things that came to mind was, and, and these are all hard. So even as I, I, I look at this bulleted list, it's like, it's hard to articulate these because you know, there's so much context, to everything that's difficult. But to keep it short, one thing is, I had a co founder, and we were 5050. I'll just say that even though that's the obvious thing that most people do, that has unique risks. My co founder and I are still friends, and it, it's all worked out. But it was surprising to me that going 5050 didn't just, oh, it's fair, it's down the middle, like that, that solves everything, right. And it's like, no, there's still surprising challenges to that. You know, again, we could do a whole episode on that. I think another one for me was just how hard it is to let go of people. And that's both terminating for, I'll just say the right reasons, meaning reasons that you understand. And I would say what's even harder, though, is layoffs. And I had to do that in that long period. And I would say layoffs are even harder. In some sense, you'd almost think it would be easier because you emotionally understand the decision like, you know, it's unfortunate, but you have to do it. I would say it's actually, it was even harder than letting someone go because of, you know, whatever performance, etc. And actually, as I look through this list, I realized one common theme is, I think these all have to do with people. <laughs> so, you know, the, the other one that was really hard lesson was your best people will sometimes leave your startup for the right reasons. And that was one where you're definitely not expecting it, right? Like your best people are your best people for a reason. And you just expect that you're going to have them for the entire journey. And sometimes that's not the way life goes. You know, like people have very good and valid reasons for moving or for graduating, if you will, from your business. And that's, that's how we chose to look at it. But that was also something hard. And then two more. One is that no deal is done until the ink is dry. So whether it's a, you know, a big contract you're about to win, or it could even be for those that are fundraising an investment opportunity, it's just not done until it's dry. And like, there, there's that truism, right, that the last little part of something is the greatest amount of effort. And man, 
you know, it's, I just found that to be true again and again. And that was always surprising because especially as an optimist, you're like, yay, the hard part's done. <laughs> but it turns out the last yard is, is often the hardest just again and again. And then um, really, I think this goes for everything, but so much of people's willingness to, to buy from you just has to do with your credibility as a founder and your experience in, in a way. And, and I would say it's, it's really to the extent of being unfair. And like, I experienced this starting out just thinking that, you know, the world is a more equitable place. And I think without getting cynical, it's like, unfortunately, you know, the world has learned how to be efficient by kind of just learning who to trust and who they trust and who they're going to buy from. And, and, you know, this gets into brand and everything else. But basically, as a first time founder, I think a really hard lesson to learn was everything I was doing was secondary to, you know, who I was, and whether they knew me, and, and there's no shortcuts to building up that reputation, right? Like, that was a hard thing to accept, especially early on, just knowing that yeah, this is going to be a long haul, partly because people just don't know who I am. <laughs> so yeah, and that holds both for big customers early on and also investors if you're raising funding, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and especially there, it can it can feel so unfair. And yet, that's the world we're in. So there's a few. Oh, man, those are good. <laughs> those are good. I was not, I'm nodding along as you're running through them. I think from my, my perspective, I had to go through almost all the things you mentioned, as well as the first thing that came to mind when I read this was one of the hardest parts for me, especially when I was running a team was having to lead and motivate and have the vision, even on days or weeks when I didn't feel like it. You know, there were entire I wouldn't say months because that would be very long, but I mean, I, I went, you just go through rough patches as a human being, you know, each of us has ups and downs. And when you're trying to lead a team and get everybody on the same page and you're kind of, people look to you for guidance, you know, and they look to you when the company's being flamed on Twitter or when you get this super angry email. And some days, you know, you only slept five hours a night before because a kid was throwing up and you're just, for me, super tired. And when I'm tired, everything's negative. And I would have these, these weeks where, it was just really hard to to be the backstop. And I think partially that was a little, a little bit of my inexperience as a leader and thinking that I did need to have all the answers. And, and I think about things differently now. I also think, yeah, I think there's experience. And I also think there's, depending on how you build your team and how you construct everything, you can, you can feel that or not. But that was kind of the most poignant. There, as you said, I bet you and I could literally brainstorm 20 of these right now off the top of my head. It's such a good, it's a broad question, but it's such a good question because it's like, what, what weren't hard things as a founder? <laughs> it's like, everything is new, everything you're doing it for the first time. And that's almost always hard by definition, you know? Yep. Yep. I, when I read this question, I, I actually saved it for the end because I knew just, just coming up with this list was going to require a breather afterwards <laughs> because it's just, it's a tough one. And it makes you relive trauma, or at least for yeah. me, I'm like, oh boy, I remember oh, yeah. that way. You know, cash flow. I mean, my other one would be I messed up cash flow back in 2014, and it was really stressful for about six months where I was like, am I going to cash out a 401k or take out money on a credit card, which are things I'm very, I mean, you, you know me, I'm quite fiscally conservative in terms of my own personal finances, never done debt, never done loans, never had credit card debt. And yet I was evaluating who can I borrow money from to like keep things afloat. You know, it was very, very stressful. So anyways, that was a good question. Thank you so much for that. I hope, uh, hope it was helpful. Our next question comes from Todd and his subject is thoughts on reaching a target audience. He said, I've been a long time fan of yours. I really enjoy listening to the podcast. The podcast has been very motivating to me as I have a SaaS startup called Nurse Referral Pro 
www.nurseworkflow.com. Nurse Referral Pro is electronic case management software for public health agencies and nonprofits. Our sales cycle is very long. He has a lot of ease and very. It's so long that we are going after an additional market, social workers, and offering the ability to sign up for our service via credit card instead of a PO. Do you have any tips for the best ways to reach enterprise clients that are high touch? We are so hyper-niched that our web traffic is extremely low. Would Facebook ads be worthwhile? Have you come across any other people in a similar space that have had success in reaching these types of users? We're in the process of rebranding, and once that's done in March, I want to make a big marketing push to get the word out to social workers. Thanks for any insights you have. What are your thoughts on this, Matt? Yeah, I I took a look at the site by following the link, and it looks like the rebrand is done. It's called Olive now, O-L-I-V-E. And, you know, it's tasteful. It's, it's makes sense to me. I couldn't quite tell if it was a pivot in the sense of saying, you know, we're no longer, but it does say additional market of social workers. So I'm going to give an answer and I'm going to assume that they're still pursuing the long cycles while also spinning up this, this other ability. But I actually wanted to key in on that. You know, it says offering the ability to sign up for our service via credit card and instead of a PO. And, and in my experience, you don't do POs because you want to, you know, you do them because, and that's a purchase order for those that don't know. So a lot of times companies will say, you know, I need an invoice or I need a quote, and then I'll give you a purchase order number. And then you can send me an invoice using that number, make sure the number's written on there somewhere. It's like the number that someone's going to need to know, you know, they have permission to pay this invoice and, and what budget that comes out of. So it's basically this enterprise handshake or API, if, if you will. And, you know, you don't do that kind of handshake if you don't have to, you know, nobody does it for fun. And so it, it's great that you're offering this by credit card instead. And if you're responding to customer demand, I understand it. But the point of all that is you need to support enterprise clients buying process, like how they buy is how they buy. You're not going to change that, especially as a independent or bootstrap startup, unless you're changing an industry, right? You're probably not going to change how they buy software. And so, you know, my tips are all generally understanding how they buy and how they prefer to buy. And then, you know, not taking any unnecessarily long, you know, routes to get to what they need. So if they need a PO, you know, make that faster, right? If they need to meet in person, be where they are. And so one other question was like, who's the buyer? Social workers and nurses themselves, are they actually making purchases? Like, I, I don't know this space personally, but, you know, I asked because you actually need to go where the economic decision makers are who maybe manage these teams of social workers and nurses, meet those people in person. Those could be conferences, you know, th those could be some just long cycles. And I, I don't think, I don't think you're gonna be able to change the industry. I think at best you can just be as efficient as others are. And so I think my last tip is, you know, who's your competition and how do they sell? And, you know, if there is an up and coming competitor that's proving to the market, hey, there's this new way to buy, it's a lot faster, use your credit card, you know, skip this, skip that, that's great. Maybe you want to copy them. But if it turns out that everybody that's selling to this market is sponsoring the lanyards at the annual convention center, <laughs> you know, in St. Louis every year, like that's probably what you need to do as well. And I, I think with the limited budget, the best thing you can do is go there and, and you're not gonna be able to buy the $15,000 lanyard platinum sponsorship package, maybe, or $150,000, even have a booth, but you can be there you know, eight hours walking the floor and just meeting everybody that you can possibly meet. And, you know, that's just a lot of hustle, right? Um, which is what I had to do in going enterprise with my business. So I, I hope that's helpful.
Yeah, very nice. My interpretation of what they're doing with, so they were called Nurse Referral Pro, but they kind of wanted to branch into social workers as well, because I, I think they're implying, Todd was implying that public health agencies and nonprofits are very long sales cycle and social workers will be a, a short sales cycle because they're more individuals and they can use a credit card. And so that's where the rebrand comes in, which I actually think is pretty nice. Site looks pretty nice. It's at oliveapp.co. And certainly it feels, it's more branded than Nurse Referral Pro. You know, I, I definitely like this, this feel more. I would throw something out, Todd. I went to the website, I clicked on pricing and that link is broken. Your pricing link, which is like one of the most popular links on your site is uh, broken as of today when we're recording. I'm guessing by the time this podcast goes live, it'll be, you know, that, that'll likely be fixed. But it is interesting. I mean, he's basically asking like, do you have tips for the best ways to reach enterprise clients like public health agencies and nonprofits that are high touch. And the thing that I see working for companies that are that are trying to do that is related to what you talked about, like, you know, the lanyard thing is trade shows are actually still working in these spaces. And it's it's something that is so far removed from, you know, a lot of kind of bootstrappers who want to do the $20 a month app and build a time tracker in that. And that, that's totally fine. But this is such a different ballgame that yes, trade shows, although the, you know, for the next three, four, five, six months, maybe that's not a thing, but that that will come back. The other thing is essentially cold or warm outreach, right? And you know, you have to figure out if that's something that some people are totally against cold or warm outreach and other folks, you know, do it with much success. So that could be cold email, it could be cold calling, warm email, warm calling. Never heard warm calling, but you get the idea. So I wouldn't expect your website, this website to be getting a bunch of traffic because how many people are out there searching for this? You know, search volume's got to be low. I would guess Facebook ads would not be worthwhile, but I, I bet you that there are Facebook groups or forums or something where these folks gather, public health agencies and nonprofits, they hang out somewhere. Can you hang out there and be useful? And don't sell. Hang out for three months and listen and offer insight and advice and don't even have your URL and your signature for the first month. And then once people realize, oh, this, eh, this Todd guy is pretty helpful. You know, you, you can kind of start easing a little bit of that in, but they already, you've, you've kind of, you truly are offering value. This is not something like, oh, sneak in and infiltrate. I'm not saying that. I'm saying like genuinely go in and answer questions. I, when we were first starting Drip 2012, 2013, I was in all these kind of entrepreneur and creative forums and blogger forums. And I was just giving, people were talking about open rates and average spam complaint rates. And what do you do? You know, just basic ESP stuff that I, I knew because we were building one. And I would just go in and answer all the questions. I did it on Quora as well. And it's not something that scales, right? But A, in his space, you don't need that many people to trust you to build a six or seven figure business because the price points are going to be so high. You know, and B, building a reputation like that, a brand is really, to me, it's more valuable than getting some Facebook clicks. That's right. I mean, they're going to ascribe his expertise to the product at that point and say, I want what he's made. And that's why Matt, you and I both have podcasts. I'm a listener and, and podcasts are part of kind of our personal brands. Some people blog a lot. You've written a lot of essays on Medium. Like all of this is just content marketing. I mean, you wouldn't think of it that way. I don't think. I never called this podcast content marketing. It's just stuff that I like talking about that I'm interested in. I like teaching and helping people, right? But 
like hopefully for, for Todd, he could do it the same way. And it's whatever modality works for him. Like if answering a bunch of questions on stuff that is really obvious to him because he's in it day to day, if that's kind of fun and exciting and it drives business, then that's amazing. You know, if it drives some leads. So Todd, I, you know, I can see you have a nice blog as well as white papers. So someone on your team is a good writer. You know, that's another content is always a decent avenue for it. So I don't think that a podcast in this space is necessarily going to work. Although I guess here's the thing. It wouldn't be for the referral part or, or the case management part. It would just be, are there public health decision makers and nonprofit decision makers? What podcasts do they listen to? You know, are there any industry-specific podcasts? It's an interesting question. And again, if, if audio and talking on the mic is not your thing, then don't go down this road. But if that's fun and interesting, then maybe something to, you know, to consider. Maybe sponsor one of those podcasts. Yeah, as a start, just to see what type of yeah. So there's there's a lot of a lot of avenues. I think that's a, it's a really good question. Thanks so much for uh, sending it over, Todd. Our next question is about working in public, and it's from Corinne Pope. She says, "What are the best ways for founders to quote work in public?" I know I should be doing it, but I'm a little overwhelmed at where to focus my efforts. Blog, Twitter, forums, YouTube. What do you think? Yeah, I I think the key word there is overwhelmed because you need to be consistent. I think people are getting to know you and that needs to be a story and all good stories need to have an arc, right? A beginning, a middle, a beginning, a middle, and maybe there's no end. It's, it's just a continuing, it's a continuing saga, right? Of, of Rob Walling or Matt Wensing or, or Corin here. And in order to generate consistent results, you need to do the medium or like you said, modality that works for you and that you can just consistently publish and it needs to be, it's never effortless, but it, it just needs to be the one that works for you. And I've seen founders that work in public, just try different things out. You know, I know that Derek Reimer at one point was, was doing some, some YouTube videos, right. Of him, like cranking on Elm, because that's a pretty, you know, it's unique, it's different and people want to maybe see that. And, but you know, he's got a very popular podcast and it's just easier for him to get on a mic, I, I suppose. And so, you know, for me, I love to write, Therefore, it's really easy for me to send out a tweet. It's easy for me to write an essay. And, you know, I also like the podcasting. But but the point is consistency. You know, I've got a co-host on our podcast, Peter Soom. And if I ever don't feel like doing it, or if I ever say I'm really busy right now, he's really good about saying, no, we, we have to get an episode out because as soon as we don't, I'm sure that the drop off is, is huge in terms of not necessarily listeners, but your consistency is is lost. And so... I think you, this is kind of a know thyself answer for what's going to work for you. And, and hopefully there is a medium of expression that's going to work. And, and I think there's so many of them right now. It's not that you have to worry that there isn't one, but I would just encourage experimentation with a bunch of different ones that's to start and you know see what sticks. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I think it's really knowing, you know, when I think of, of Steli FD sitting down to write a 5,000 word blog post, I don't think that is his, his zone of genius, right? But him getting in front of a camera for six minutes, I think he's, he's better than, you know, 99% of people I see doing it, you know? And then there are certain folks who you'll read their writing for years. And the first time you hear him on a podcast, you're like, wow, I'd prefer to hear your writing. I'd prefer to read your writing. You know, it, it's just <laughs> yeah. things. And so that's not to say you can't get better at things. I mean, I will say like before this podcast, I was writing multiple essays per week for years and my writing started off okay. And it, it got pretty good in the end and I could crank stuff out quick and I was really good at it, but I wanted to go to that next level. So we started the podcast and 
as folks may have heard a couple of weeks ago, yeah, I just you can go back to episode one anytime. It's on the website, but I I put in like the first five minutes of the very first episode to celebrate our ten year anniversary, and it's awful. And we're really we're really like reading from a script, and and we don't we just don't sound good. The sound quality is terrible, you know. So it's not to say that you have to be a great podcaster to start, because certainly we were not. And you will get better over time. But I feel like it's the question of what are you good at, and what perhaps do you want to be better at. Do you want to be better on the mic or do you want to be better in front of a camera? Or are you, you know, when you look at the people who really do have success on Twitter, what are they doing differently? Because that's not something, they take a certain approach to it, you know, whereas someone, we can see people who are not on Twitter at all. Seth Godin, example. He is not on Twitter, right? He has this broadcast account that's called like the success blog and his blog posts go out there, but he does not respond, does not interact. And yet we read his books and we read his blog. A lot of people do. And of course he branched into podcasting like a year or two ago. So I, I think it's, it is starting there of like, do you want to do long form opinionated content? Is that kind of where your zone of genius is? Then think about medium or your own blog, depending on how you want to do it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, and, and I also think, I guess to add the last piece is like, what is your end goal here? Is it to reach an end user who may be a customer of yours in the future? Then you almost have, you can't just say, what is it I'm good at or want to be good at? But then it's like, well, where are they as well? Are they truly everywhere or are more of them engaging daily on Twitter or do a lot of them listen to podcasts? Are they a lot in these founder Slack groups or on YouTube or whatever? So I realize this is an it depends answer, but that's it kind of is, you know, because really me doing, trying to do a Steli FD video or whoever else. I mean, we can just think of people who are probably going to be incompatible with certain formats and, and really excel at others naturally. I mean, you got you to gotta find your wheelhouse a little bit, I think. Yeah, I, I'm laughing because the Steli FD video, the six minutes of high energy, you know, say it, go, like that's my kryptonite. Yep. You know, I, I, can't, I, I try and I've given, I've given pitches on stage in front of people and for me, it's just a different context. Like there's the energy of the live audience. There's the, there's kind of just the, the sense of performance, like that's okay. But if I'm just sitting down in front of a computer or in front of a laptop camera, it just does not work for me. So, you know, don't get discouraged. In other words, you, you might just need to change one little variable and there you go. Thanks for the question, Corinne. I hope that was helpful and look forward to seeing you uh, at the next microconf. She comes to a lot of microconf. So our next question is from Dylan Berry. And he asks for advice about advisors. He says, I've been a longtime listener, two-time microconf attendee. One of the first of all, thank you for the most recent episode with Andy Baldacci. This shows how far behind I am on questions because that was at probably more than a month ago. He said, this was one of the better interviews you've done. And I love how you were able to dive in more than usual into some tactics and thought process that Andy has around growth. Bravo. I'm a co-founder of an iPad-based visitor management software company in Denver, Colorado. At the leadership level, we recently started talking about how we might need or could get a lot of value from having more advisors involved. So I figured it might be worthwhile sending you a message to see if you had any suggestions for how we could best go about finding advisors. We aren't really looking for formal business coaching engagements. We're really just looking to find a few people who've been there and done that to occasionally look at what we are doing, ask thought-provoking questions, provide feedback on how what we are doing compares to situations they've seen in the past, and give us a heads up as to things we should be looking out for as we continue to grow our small software company. Thanks again for the wonderful episode. And for the time and energy you continue to put into helping the bootstrapping community. Delin. Thanks for the question, Delin. Matt, what do you think about this? 
Great question. Advisors can be super helpful and it can be formal or informal. So this is one where I would love to just ask a question right back. So I'm gonna have to make some assumptions, but it, you know, being in being based in Denver, right, there's obviously a decent startup scene there. And so I'm not sure if there's anything preventing interactions there, obviously, aside from the current social distancing efforts. But I found most of my informal advisors through just people that I met at events and you know, giving them the elevator pitch of my business as far as, hey, what do you do? And if it's an event where there's a lot of startups there, there's also going to be startup, experienced startup founders, some of them angel investors and some of them, you know, venture capitalists maybe. But if you can go to one of those mixer type of events and share your pitch, in some sense, it, a great pitch should draw advisors out of the woodwork. One out of however many of those you talk to will suddenly realize, hey, I can... I think I could actually add some value to this to this guy and, and their business. Like, hey, what do you think about this? And like, they'll want to keep in touch with you. And so that's just the the on-ramp that I end up having with a lot of folks that became interested in, in advice. I mean, even if you're not raising money and so they don't become an investor, you can thank them for their time. You could give them an advisory agreement that gives them either a little bit of ownership or some, you know, a small customary percentage or payment for their time. But I, I will say a lot of the best advice I got was was not through those, like Dylan said, official management consulting or, or business arrangements, right? Where it's like, I'm going to be an advisor to you. And you know, here's my $5,000 a month charge or whatever. It was mostly through just friends of the company that I met through these kinds of events. And again, I'm probably biased towards these in-person type of meetings because I just went to a lot of them in my past. But Twitter might be a, a more virtual way to do that. I think it'd probably take longer. So yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if there's something I don't understand about why it's difficult. But if I had to pinpoint something, it's kind of a little bit of a litmus test of you go to one of those events, talk to 20 people, give the pitch, do that five or six times, I would expect that some people are going to lean forward and, and want to help you. But obviously, mileage is going to vary. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I almost never hear this question from people who have raised funding. Because once you have investors, you tend to allow smart investors in. Angel investors tend to be former founders, not always, but a lot of them have been there and done that. And so that's in an odd way. I never suggest people should or should or should not raise funding. It all depends on it. But it's like, that's the easy way. That's the shortcut. Because then someone has skin in the game really quickly, because they own part of the company and you succeeding helps helps them in a, you know, in a roundabout way. So that's kind of the shortcut way. The other way I really like, I think the in-person stuff is really what it is. And, and we've had through microconfs, we've had people connect and, you know, start mastermind groups and start co-founder relationships and also start advising relationships. And I, when I think of an informal advising with no equity given, my biggest question is why, why should they do that? You know, advisors are probably busy people that are either running companies, have run companies or, or whatever they're doing, they have families that, you know, every minute or every hour in a month they give you, they're taking away from something else in their lives. And so there has to be some motivation. And for me, it's either they want to do it pro bono because you, you know, you're like a, a not-for-profit or a B Corp and it's truly donating time. And that's, that's going to be a small subset, I think. I think the much more often I do see there being uh, advisor shares that wind up being, I'll say the ranges I've seen are between half a percent and 1% of the company, depending on the stage it's at. I don't know if you've heard numbers that are different than that. Yeah, same. Yeah. And that's what you do. And if you find someone really good, really knowledgeable, it really can be worth it. 
there's a value add there where they can save you months of time. And some people completely balk at not only owning 100% of their company, and that's fine. And in that case, maybe you should go to clarity.fm, you know, if clarity.com, and you can get some advice. But that goes back to the, there are founders on there. They're not just business coaches, right? But in that case, I feel like you should pay them for their time, or they should get paid in equity. And I think those are the fair arrangements, you know, that there is that you're getting some value, so they should also get some value. Yeah. And again, that goes back to like, do they believe that a half a percent or 1% stake in your business is worth something? And and that goes back to your pitch. But I mean, just to put it in perspective too, and a little advice, like you never give that percentage up front. They earn that over, you know, a two-year period. Yeah. So if you think about it, it's like, wow, they're going to get 1% for 24 months of giving me advice and help. Like, you feel like you're getting the good end of that deal if they're if they're good. So, right, yeah. So I like it, and the in person stuff is exactly what I would be going to as well. Obviously, again, for the next three to four or five months or whatever, that might be tough, but that's how you're going to break through the noise because most of the advisors who are knowledgeable and experienced and and I'll say are really going to bring a lot of value are going to tend to be in demand, and they get a lot of emails, you know, and questions about can you be an advisor, and um, so you you do kind of have to cut through the noise there. So thanks so much for the question, Delana. I hope, hope our thoughts were helpful. Our next question is from TJ Zastro from crewbooks.app. And he's asking which niche to focus on. He says, thank you for everything you do, Rob and crew. I need help narrowing down which niche I should focus on finding product market fit with. I have several niches which my product might serve, but I'm a bit stuck in analysis paralysis deciding which of these, if any, could scale if I find traction. The product is crewbooks.app. And the H1 tag on the on the homepage is generate a book with friends just by sharing a link. So how it works is each contributor fills in a form and gets a single page included in the resulting physical book or PDF. And then TJ lists a bunch of different niches that he might focus on. The first one is schools as a fundraising tool. I think poetry, anthology, short stories. Second one is gyms or fitness studios as a SKU they can sell from their front desk. The third is craft breweries or other industries could benefit from a collaborative industry guide. The fourth is funeral homes as a package add-on that they could sell. Think friends and family contributing. Five is SMBs looking to boost company culture where everybody collaborates on something. Six is churches or groups as a directory book. Seventh is conference organizers to have custom swag to give away. These are all interesting, interesting niches. What do you think about this, Matt? Yeah, I empathize with this completely because I had a weather data proposition for people back when storm pulse was getting off the ground and it started out b to c but then we went b to b and when you go b to b you've got to have messaging that isn't just for every human on the planet right it needs to have some niche focus to it so what i did and what i'm going to recommend and actually i went through this process for tj so i would say start this way right you, you got all these niches and you could probably come up with 20 more if you just spent one more year, you know, looking for more. I don't know how long Tane came up with these seven, but SMBs was one. And it's like, hmm, if you double click on SMBs, there's probably like 500 within that one. So it's an endless list. And my advice was just abstract away the niche for a second. Okay. And just think about all of the assumptions that a successful implementation of this product requires. And so the, the product is generate books, right, by sending a link to your friends. And that was the H1 because that that has to be totally generic. So we'll run with that for a second. What I think has to be true for that to work as a business, and he said something that's going to scale, right? 
is the readers of the book that gets created, they actually have to care what the contributors write, right? So like the contributors content has to be high quality, or it has to be someone that's special to me. So if it's my grandmother, quality doesn't matter so much, right? She's special to me. But if she's not my grandmother, I don't have a personal connection, it needs to be really good. And, and for example, I don't know, there's a lot of conferences I go to where I necessarily think that every attendee has something valuable to contribute to a book. Like, I'm not sure that the book is going to be super high quality necessarily, right? So that's one, the readers need to care what the contributors write. Number two is your customer. So CrewBooks customer, they have to have this need to create books on a monthly or better basis, right? Because you need to have this customer coming back to you again and again to create another book and create another book. Because if they have one conference or fundraiser per year, that's just not enough average revenue for them, for you, right? They're going to they're gonna pay you that one-time thing per year and that's it. Like, that's not good enough. And then the last one is your customer, CrewBooks' customer, they need to have an audience, right? And that audience needs to be somebody where they have access to their pocketbooks. So for example, you know, social media influencers, they might have 59,000 followers. So they have an audience, but they're just posting on Instagram, right? And they don't have access to the spending of their audience, right? They, they don't have their credit card numbers, right? And so your customer, whoever buys your software to create these books, I think it's really important that their audience is already used to buying things from them and doesn't just have an audience that listens and says, okay, now you're going to buy something from me. It's just not natural. So I listed that out to say, you know, I don't know if you agree with these or not, TJ, but if you agree with those, and maybe there's more, right, you should be able to use that to filter out bad niches and not waste your time. So I can't tell you which one's the right one. But if you use that to filter, that would be how I would approach it. And then also, once you do pick that niche, man, you got to niche down the website significantly. Because once you pick, you need to go all in on that niche. And like I looked at one example that came to mind was like, and this actually would get disqualified, but just take cookbooks, for example, that friends want to put together. Like you need to own then like cookbooks.app or whatever it is, like my friends cookbooks.app and just be, you know, that's where people land. It appears to people that all you do is that right? And all the language needs to be about that. And then maybe at the bottom, it's like powered by crew books, right? And, and maybe, I don't know how much appetite you have for this, but if you find two or three niches, right, this might be a powered by kind of situation where maybe you don't find any one that scales. And this is really tough because I hate to split focus. But if you find, you know, two that are halfway there or three that are a third of the way there, and you combine all those, you know, again, I don't know how much bandwidth you have. Ideally, you find one, but this could also be a powered by situation where you've got, you know, three or four landing pages or microsites that in aggregate build a, a decent business for you. But I would flip the script a little bit on this one. Love it, sir. That was really good advice. I think I, I echo pretty much everything you say. And, and I feel like this is a solution in search of a problem. Mm-hmm. Really what it is. And how do you find people that have this problem? I, I kind of see two avenues to go. If this is, you know, in, in stair step approach, I could see this as like a step one business where it is just one time and maybe it's beta C and it's all driven by Facebook ads or Instagram or something. And it really is going to grow to two, three, four grand a month. And that's it. And you use this to step to your next thing, right? That's one avenue to go down. And that's, that can be fun and you can learn a lot, but that's not going to become, it's not going to replace your income likely. And it's not going to grow into some seven figure business. The other avenue is exactly what you were describing where it's like, probably go to B2B 
because uh, what consumer is going to need to, you know, what, what consumer is not going to be super price sensitive and need to do this on a recurring basis? So probably go B2B, go with people who are doing it recurring, make sure you charge enough. I mean, that's a whole other avenue to go down. And I don't see a straight path on this one because there, and, until you find that group of businesses, whether it's a vertical niche or whether it's a, you know, whatever it is, it's a role at a company, until you find that group or those people who have this problem that you are the solution to, you don't really have much. You know, you have some software that does some stuff. Yeah. And, and it just one last thought. It's like the funeral homes example was like, it resonated because it has this emotional appeal. They've, they have to do this again and again. But how, how many funeral homes are you going to go to where somebody says, oh, you know, we've been so frustrated with the way we do this today, right? We've been looking for a better way to do it. They're probably going to say, Oh yeah, you know Nancy takes care of this. She she has this thing she order a catalog that she orders books from for people, and it's probably a solved problem for a lot of these folks. And there's not enough pain in those niches to necessarily change how they do things. Yep. So thanks again for the question, TJ. I hope that was helpful. Our last question for today is from Tyler at CreatedWithLove.com. He says, "I've been listening to Startups for the Rest of Us for about three years. I currently own a." physical subscription product. And actually, Tyler's written into the show several times. He says, I'm looking to launch a SaaS app this year. And this podcast has been a huge inspiration for me. I have a lot of experience with the subscription model, as well as design, data analysis, and a little bit of sales. My co-founder for the app is very strong in digital advertising, SEO, and inbound and outbound email with basic knowledge of the code. However, together, we don't have the technical skills required to build the app. We're self-funding, we have an agency building a very low-cost MVP so that we can start testing and gathering data, but we know this is not a feasible long-term development solution. What are a few tips or guidelines you'd give to non-tech founders who are working on their first SaaS app, imagining the results of the MVP show the build is worth pursuing? Thanks again for all you do. I'm very excited for this idea because it means I can go back and re-listen to all the episodes. I wouldn't go do that, but yeah, maybe go pick and pick some where we were talk specifically about it. So this is a good question. I like it. And you know, for non-developer founders, I do think that there are some there's kind of a thought process you can think about. So what you got for us, Matt? I look at this one as saying, you know, what can you do before you code? Because you basically said you have a lot of the other skills. And I think the answer is you can do everything that a great product person does before they code, which should be a lot, right? So Tyler's on the right track to be thinking MVP. They said they wanted to learn whether the app is worth pursuing. So this is the right mindset, right? They're doing the MVP to learn. But have you written down the things that you're looking to learn? So let's say, for example, you're hoping to learn that there's going to be consistent engagement and a willingness to pay, right? Because those are the things that are going to convince you that this is worth pursuing. So you know, I would list out explicitly, users will use the MVP when they need to do blank, right? Users will use this MVP weekly. Customers will show interest in subscribing with the current feature set, you know, for example, even if we don't have a mobile app. So you need to list out the assertions that the MVP, by having that, you can disprove those things, right? And if you do this, then I'm just talking about maximizing the value you get from this MVP, because you said collect data. I just want to make sure that the data you're collecting is been thought through enough to falsify or prove wrong the things that you need to be true to bother investing more. You're like, hey, if these things are true, we're going to invest more. Great. Let's find out if they're not true, right? And if you disprove one, then you celebrate, you write it down, and you put on your product management hat, and you keep collecting these items. And then what you have is you have a very specific and well-defined set of requirements to give that 
give back to that agency and say, this MVP isn't good enough, but we think a 1.5, you know, or 1.1 iteration is going to get us get us where we need to go. And it's just these things, right? And I would also say, remember not to let the agency get between you and your end users. So work really closely with your first 10 to 20 users, finding fit with them through these small controlled iterations. Um, so you don't waste money or time. And, and this is obviously the lean approach. And when you're talking about not having a technical co-founder, what I'm actually implying is in this scenario, I wouldn't advise going out and finding a CTO or technical co-founder. And I, I don't think Tyler is saying that's what they want to do. But what you're doing instead is you're going to learn the product management skill and these lean techniques to a level where the technical role that you need to fill is really small. Like it's, you know, the agency might even want to do more for you than you actually need at this point, because all you're really asking for at this point is you want an individual contributing kind of developer, maybe somebody that you could bring on a contract to hire situation in the future. And really, you're just bringing engineering skill in house to execute on your product direction, but you need to get really good at product management, and not wasting your engineering time, because that's, that's a direct cost to you in a clock is ticking sort of way. So that would be my, my approach. Yeah, I like the way you pointed out, you know, product management and product ownership is a skill that most people don't know exists. They, they think that to build a software product, you hire a developer. And yes, the developer writes code, but who decides what gets built? and how it gets built, how it's architected on the back end, what it looks like on the front end. You know, these, these are really detailed, technical, and also some artistic and design. There's just so much that goes into all the decision making. And so I like how you've, you've called that out as if you're going to, even if you don't write code, hiring out your product direction, your product vision, I've never seen anyone do that. I've seen people hire out the code because they say, I know it needs to be built. I generally know how it's going to work. I've educated myself on product best practices, whether that's following Basecamp, 37 Signals guys, or whether that's um, reading, you know, Don't Make Me Think. I think it's Steve Krug, who's written several books on usability and how to think about that or listening to product focused podcasts. You'll hear people deciding how, to, how do you ingest 100 feature requests and figure out how to, you know, which two features to build and how to build them. That's where the knowledge has to be with you. So I think that's kind of my first tip or guideline is like, have a vision for your product. And if you don't find one, make one up, figure it out, you know, through conversations with the users, as well as educating yourself on what it means to to be a product owner. I mean, these are roles at SaaS companies, right? They have, they'll have an entire engineering org, 10, 15 engineers building features. Then they'll have a, an entire product org where when I say org, I just mean a department or just a group of people who work together. And the engineers are doing their scaling and they're building features. And the product people, there may be three, four, five of them are often, there's typically like a, a UI designer, a UX focused person. There's typically like a product manager, which is the word you used. And a lot of people think is a product manager, just someone who is in Gantt charts, you know, and it's like, no, product manager is different than project manager. Those are two very different things. Project managers tend to look at dates and critical paths and getting resources to do this and that. And they're communicating and they're, they're trying to get everybody on the same page. Product managers are doing all that, but they're doing it for a product and they have to be opinionated about what gets built and they have to get people on board with what's going to get built next. And when you're at an org of 100, 200, 300 people, that role looks a certain way. When you're at an org of two or three people, it looks different, but someone still needs to take that reign. And someone needs to have those conversations with customers and decide what to build and communicate to the engineers, you know, again, what to build, how to build it. And, and oftentimes that's a collaboration. If you're not writing the code yourself, you do need to find a, I, I'm saying after that, let's say the MVP 
shows up, people love it, they want to pay money for it. You know, what are your next steps? Well, I personally, if you're truly self-funding this, I would probably not go with an agency because they're very expensive. So I have all in the past gone and hired freelancers. And it depends on your your situation. You can hire a freelancer on like a contract to hire type thing, which is probably what you want to do ultimately is have someone in-house who owns that code base. Owns meaning they they care about downtime and they're keeping unit tests being written and and they really are guarding that code base. And and that's uh, that's what I've tended to do. And and it's like if you if you're really low on budget, then yes, yeah, sometimes you have to hire an engineer that's not as good as you want. But I do think that there are really good engineers, especially over the next six months, that are going to be coming more available. Unfortunately, given the impending impending economic stuff. Yeah, I, I think if in this case, if they can, and the agency they have, and the relationship they have right now, it's it's already been set, right? So this might not apply, but you do want to effectively bring product management in-house, you know, you and your co-founder own that, the cost is controlled, and you're outsourcing that project project management and engineering execution by giving them a very clear spec, which engineers love, by the way, <laughs> it's a very clear spec of, of what you expect and what you want. And the last technique I'll mention is Patrick Campbell gave a talk at MicroConf, Rob, it was a couple years ago now on this techniques of, it was a whole, it was an hour long talk. Part of it was a quilting example, like building an MVP for a quilting company uh, that he talked about with his mom. And he used this couple techniques in there, which are surveys and very good at helping you develop a clear spec on what features to build and not to build just by surveying your intended target audience. So you could do all of that yourselves, right? And then say, we're confident that this is the feature set that we need to go live with. And, and I hope they've already done this. But if you haven't, do all of that before you spend more money on engineering. Yeah, so thanks for the question, Tyler. It does sound like you have you have your wits about you in terms of you didn't go spend 50 grand with an agency to build some full-fledged product. It sounds like you're going, you know, since you're self-funding, you're going with a nice uh, low budget to try to prove it out. And hopefully our discussion today was helpful. Matt Wensing, thanks so much again for coming on the show. If folks want to keep up with you, they can head to the Out of Beta podcast. You and Peter Sum ship that almost every, well, every week. I oftentimes, especially with kind of the, our crowd, I often say, you ship, you know, most weeks because that's what it winds up being, right? It winds up being three weeks a month, but you guys have been strikingly consistent. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> awesome. And you are Matt Wensing on Twitter as well. That's right. Thanks, Rob. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks again to Matt for joining me today. If you have a question for a future show for myself or a guest, you can email us questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. You can send it as text, send it as voicemail. If you send a voicemail, it goes to the top of the stack. Subscribe to us by searching for startups in all the podcatchers. And if you want a full transcript of these episodes or links for the show notes, visit startupsfortherestofus.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.